This morning, uh, we are going to kind of go to the theater, if you will, and uh, look at a three-act drama that is as compelling as it is life-changing. It has an incredible cast of characters, including a lead that many of you, (coughs) excuse me, have already fallen desperately in love with. It has incredible sets, intrigue, betrayal, supernaturally special effects, plot twists, and of course, a happy ending. But I had trouble with the title. I was trying to get a good title that would look good on a playbill like Fiddler on the Roof or South Pacific or Guys and Dolls or Paint Your Wagon. But alas, I was not able to come up with anything but communion with Jesus. But don't let the title fool you. Because communion with Jesus, as it says in your notes this morning, is as good as it gets in life. It is as compelling as it is life-changing. So this morning, let's raise the curtain on Act 1. Act 1 is actually prior to Easter. It is after the uh, triumphal entry, and it is uh, most often referred to as the Last Supper. The first uh, instance of communion that we often will look back to uh, and read this passage during uh, communion service. But let me set the scene a little bit. Um, I uh, was actually, when we, we used to live in uh, Dallas, uh, Oregon, west of Salem, uh, and I was on staff there for a short time as well, um, but I remember our church there used to put on a production uh, of the Passion of Christ that was really extraordinary, especially for a small church uh, like we had. It was an amazing production every year uh, that, they, that they put that on. But there was one scene that was particularly memorable to me, and that is the depiction of the Last Supper that was done. And uh, as the lights came up, the lights came up very dim, and there was a couple that was up at a, at a couple of microphones in the center of the stage, and they were in their Middle Eastern garb, and, and uh, one of the guys was strumming on a guitar, and they were singing a very simple song about the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And as they were playing that song, uh, off to stage right, in filed the disciples. And as the disciples came in, there's this long rustic, you know, table, and they're coming in and they're lighting the candles. And... I was going to light the candles this morning. Uh, I actually did light them before the first service, uh, but there's a significant draft that's heading, you know, this direction that didn't, you know, allow the candles, you know, to uh, do anything but go out. I know there's a significant draft that's going the other way this morning as well, so we'll just leave the candles unlit, all right? So you'll just have to use your imagination. Uh, But as they were coming in and they were lighting these candles, it was this intimate time. And as the disciples were coming in one by one, they, were, they weren't coming in somberly. They were coming in. They were embracing each other. They were laughing together. And as Jesus came in, he came in as kind of one of the guys in this scene. He didn't come in and they all of a sudden hit their knees or all of a sudden raised their hands or bowed or whatever. He came in and they were embracing him as well. And, they were, and he was laughing with them and they were partaking of this meal together and, uh, and then it goes on, you know, with the elements that we've come to appreciate. But I just, I just love the picture of that scene. And whenever we come to the table of Christ, I think in terms of that, that Jesus is calling us not to this somber religious moment, but he's calling us 
to this moment of intimacy with him. So let's go ahead and roll the script uh, from Luke 22. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Now during this scene, uh, I'm wondering what the disciples were thinking and feeling. No doubt they were on a spiritual high. They've just gone through the uh, triumphal entry, uh, the moment they've all been waiting for. When they are when Jesus is going to start to take over and when they uh, usher Jesus into Jerusalem and the palm branches are waving and people are excited and Hosanna and the highest are being raised, disciples are probably on a spiritual high. They've witnessed blind eyes being opened, cripples walking, dead men like their close associate Lazarus also walking, lepers made clean, deaf hearing, mute talking, and perhaps best of all, the mouths of the religious leaders shut. Were they feeling smug, perhaps? We're taken over. In fact, one of the accounts in the Gospels has the, has the apostles arguing about who's going to be the greatest. So they're ready, man. They're ready. Of course, we know what one of the disciples named Judas was thinking during that time as well. And by the way, if you missed a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Doug shared uh, about Judas Iscariot, I was pretty delighted when Pastor Stan gave me the passage of the red letters that I'd be sharing this morning. I imagine Pastor Doug might have had a different reaction as he was told, you're going to be speaking about Judas Iscariot. It's like, thanks boss, <laughs> you know, great. But I'll tell you what, I, uh, I have not heard such a lesson on Judas Iscariot and uh, it is such a beautiful picture of what repentance means from a most unlikely, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, lead character, if you will. Uh, so I encourage you to get the uh, listen to the cod podcast, excuse me, on that. But whatever they were thinking prior to that first communion with Jesus was soon replaced with confusion. Confusion. What are they thinking? As Jesus is saying, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance? You're right here. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
which is poured out for you. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but historians and Bible scholars agree that as the curtain drops on the end of Act 1, Peter turns to John the Beloved and says, Huh? And the curtain goes down at the end of Act 1. As the curtain rises, now on Act 2, we get to the passage that Pastor Stan gave me, and that is the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus. You've no doubt heard this story. This takes place on the first Easter Sunday. Jerusalem has been in a complete uproar. Jesus has been tried. He's been tortured. He's been marched to a hill called the Skull and was crucified. And much to the shock of the disciples, he died. I'm sure they must have been saying, Okay, Jesus, any time now, you can stop this whole charade. Okay. Ouch, that looks like it hurt. When's this going to be over? Okay. And he died and stayed dead. And his body was removed from the cross. The sky went black in the middle of the day. The temple veil was miraculously torn from top to bottom. And yes, graves opened up. If you were here last week, mother-in-laws came back to life. <laughs> if you weren't here last week, Pastor Stan told the story of a guy who went on a visit with his wife and mother-in-law to the Holy Land, and the mother-in-law died. And they said, you can either bury her here for a couple hundred dollars or spend $15,000 to send her back to the States to be buried. He said, seems like I heard about somebody that rose from the dead here. I can't take that chance. <laughs> so he spent the 15 grand to bring her back. But I imagine there might have been a few mother-in-laws, although the Bible says that there were many other saints that were raised. So that, that could be perhaps a stretch of Scripture. I'm not sure exactly what the, uh, what the Greek is there. But, but graves were ripped open and People came back to life. They did. What a day. Jesus' body was taken down and put in a new tomb. A seal was put over the entrance. A Roman guard was stationed. The citizens finally returned to their homes when there was nothing left to see here. And two dejected disciples returned home on a long and difficult journey. No doubt that included a lot of kicking rocks and looking down. So let's roll the script on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them. Now don't lose the dramatic moment here. I mean, they're looking down, they are bummed out about what's going on. These are called two disciples. So they're upset about what's going on, don't have a clue what is going on here. And, and they don't recognize that Jesus kind of sidles up right beside him. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? <laughs> kind of like being in London this last week. 
You know, what's been going on here? And Jesus responds, probably with a wry smile, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all, excuse me, the scriptures concerning himself. That must have been a great lesson to be a part of. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going along farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. And see if you recognize what happened next. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Wouldn't this be a great play to do? All of a sudden, just poof, he's gone. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures up to us? So what are these two disciples now feeling and thinking? Well, at the beginning of the scene, you have no trouble believing they were disappointed, but it went past disappointment. We've all been disappointed before when things haven't gone our way. Downcast? Yeah. Way downcast. Scripture says they were, I mean, they were looking down at the road. Disillusioned? I mean, they thought he was the one. They thought he was going to redeem Israel. They thought he was the one that was finally going to release them from this oppressive Roman rule. And despairing. Despairing. You ever been there? Perhaps some of you are all the way to that last word, despairing, this morning. They were. But things changed in a moment. Whatever they were thinking and feeling before they had communion with Jesus was changed in a moment. As he broke the bread, their eyes were opened and their hearts began to burn within them. Now, let's take a brief intermission before we get to Act 3. The grand finale. And it is the grand finale in every way. But what have we learned happens when we have communion with Jesus? First of all, we move from religious observation to intimate relationship. To intimate relationship. For the disciples, a prescribed feast of the law that they have no, had no doubt uh, taken together as a full team of disciples, as well as most of them, if not all of them, their entire lives. 
They know what the Passover is all about. And they've been involved in the Passover for years. But with Jesus, that Passover meal became a whole new reality for them. Now my family uh, experienced a Passover meal together last year. Most of you are uh, aware that we had a couple of foster kids that were with us uh, named Matt and Ella. Uh, Ella has actually returned uh, back home to us uh, as of about a month ago and is here today. And uh, we are very blessed. We, uh, we were prescribed during the time of the Passover uh, that we needed to have the Passover meal with them. That was wishes of their parents. It was the wishes of DHS. So we went shopping and we got the, uh, the matzo balls and had the matzo ball soup. And we had the bitter herbs and we had the unleavened bread. And we did the whole Passover thing. And it was very interesting. And, uh, you know, it's full of meaning, as you know. In fact, we had someone share in a high school chapel a few weeks ago about the meaning of the Passover. But when you're not used to the Passover meal, it's, it's rather peculiar when you're, when you're going through it. And it can take on just an empty ritual if you're not careful. And that is very much true of the communion meal that we take together on a regular basis. It can also be true of water baptism, but I hope it's not. My, uh, my favorite services, bar none, are water baptism services. I mean, you know, if you don't know what baptism is all about, you know, you, you would look at that and go, well, what, I mean, what is the big deal? You know, someone comes out, you know, and for us, you know, it's out there and there's a big, you know, horse trough that's filled with water and, you know, they, they go down dry and they come up wet and everybody cheers and, and they're this drowned rat and that's so embarrassing. And what, what, is, what is wrong with you people? But Jesus describes and the Apostle Paul describes, you know, that this is symbolic of, on the outside of what's happened on the inside. And as you are laid into that water symbolizing death, and then you are ripped from that death into newness of life and you get out of that baptismal and you walk in newness of life as a Christ follower, it's just all kinds of meaning. And it's so exciting. You know, and you see, you know, oftentimes people that go down and they come back up and they're just doing this and they're so excited and that's the way it should be. But then we come to communion and do we have that same kind of excitement? That same kind of anticipation? You know, and oftentimes when we take communion, now, I'm not speaking critically because it needs to be a sober moment. It needs to be a moment of reflection. But it's not a funeral that we're celebrating when we're taking communion. You know, we're not every so often celebrating the funeral of Jesus all over again. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and what it means to us. And he's given this to us as this powerful symbol of what has happened. And as he's, as he's talking to the disciples about this, the first time he explains it, he's speaking prophetically. And he's saying, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Which in hours, it's going to be literally ripped apart by, by the whips that are full of glass and, and hard balls and all kind, just, you know, bones and things as they whip his back. It literally rips the flesh off of his back. So when it says his body was broken for us, that is literally, he was unrecognizable by the end of this beating. And his blood poured out for you and me. And there's a reality that Jesus is ushering in of the new covenant. 
And as used, as, as the Jews were so used to these prescribed feasts and things of the law, Jesus is coming in and saying, I am fulfilling all of them. And now as you take the cup and now as you take the bread, the Lamb of God is right here. This perfect Lamb of God. And Jesus completely changes it. But he doesn't change it into one religious observation to another. He changes it from a religious observation to this intimate fellowship. And for the Jewish mind, that was incomprehensible. The Jewish word Yahweh, which means God with us, was a word that they didn't use very much. It was Elohim. It was the Almighty God. No trouble with that. But the God that wants to embrace me and know me and be with me and calls me to be in the Holy of Holies with Him, that was a radical thought. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. The second thing is, they moved from confusion and despair to eyes that were opened. The disciples had to wait a few days, and their eyes were opened, and we're going to get there in a second. But for the, for the, uh, for the men, for the disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened. No more confusion. No more despair. Came across this story, speaking of eyes being opened, of Charlie Boswell. You probably haven't heard of Charlie Boswell. Well, the writer is saying, he's always been one of my heroes. He's inspired me and thousands of others to rise above circumstances and live a life of true passion. Charlie was blinded during World War II while rescuing his friend from a tank that was under fire. He was a great athlete before his accident, and in a testimony to his talent and determination, he decided to try a brand new sport, a sport he never imagined playing even with eyesight, golf. Through determination and deep love for the game, he became the national blind golf champion. He won that honor 13 times. One of his heroes was the great golfer Ben Hogan, as you see on the screen. So it was truly an honor for Charlie to win the Ben Hogan Award in 1958. Upon meeting Ben Hogan, Charlie was awestruck and stated that he had been, uh, that he had one wish and it was to have a round of golf with the great Ben Hogan. So Mr. Hogan agreed that playing a round together would be an honor for him as well, as he had heard about all of Charlie's accomplishments and truly admired his skills. Would you like to play for money, Mr. Hogan? blurted out Charlie. I can't play you for money. That wouldn't be fair, said Mr. Hogan. Ah, oh, come on, Mr. Hogan. A thousand dollars per hole. I can't. What would people think of me taking advantage of you in your circumstances, replied the sighted golfer. Are you chicken, Mr. Hogan? Okay, Hogan finally blurted out. But I'm going to play my best. I wouldn't expect anything else, said the confident Boswell. Well, you're on, Mr. Boswell. You name the time and the place. The place is right here, Mr. Hogan. The time is 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> I imagine that Mr. Hogan's wallet was a little bit lighter after that round. <laughs> Oh, but from confusion and despair to eyes 
opened. And the third thing is from hopelessness and fear to hearts that were set on fire. Hiding out and heading home becomes running to tell everybody the story. And once again, let's roll the script on Act 3, the grand finale. And it is that in every way. To set the scene, this scene involves, as most grand finales do, the entire cast, the courageous and world-changing disciples were in the situation room and the situation was dire. Jesus was dead, incoming reports to the contrary notwithstanding, which meant that they probably were too. That probably explained their hushed tones, trembling hands, and flinching at every sound. Meanwhile, the two disciples from Emmaus were running back along the seven-mile track from Emmaus to Jerusalem that they had just walked down moments before with news that would change everything. It already had for them. Now, how they found the disciples were not told or how they got past security, but the joint chiefs seemed to welcome their arrival into their hideout. So let's roll the script. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, these guys from Emmaus. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen, has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. Once again, let's pause for dramatic effect here. Okay, don't get past this. I mean, they're, they're having communion with Jesus. Poof, he's gone. They run the seven miles, find the disciples, and they're with him, and they're like hiding out. No one knows where we are. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks through the wall, magically, you know, is beamed in. You know, however that happens, you know, he's all of a sudden right there with them. <laughs> And appropriately enough said, peace be with you. Because they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you so troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still not, did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So if they weren't convinced by looking at his hands and his feet, perhaps they will be convinced if I eat something. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then, and then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Oh, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, okay, here comes the crescendo, you know, climax of the show here. He lifted his hands and blessed them. 
and did what they were probably expecting he would do while he was on the cross. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And this isn't in the Bible either, but the disciples were probably going, now that's more like it! And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. What a difference a few moments makes of communion with Jesus. So what are they thinking and feeling now? Scripture says they still did not believe it because of their joy and amazement. How can this be? You were dead. I watched it. I watched him take your body off and haul you out. You were dead. And he's alive. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. You think? And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And in the sequel to this musical, it's the upper room where they were clothed with power from on high and then Katie bar the door after that. Disciples moved from religious observation to intimate relationship with their Lord and Savior. From confusion and despair to eyes that were opened. And from hopelessness and fear to hearts that were set on fire. That's what happens when we have communion with Jesus. It's as good as life gets. It's not just a compelling story, but it's the desire of the Almighty God to change everything about our lives. Again, some of you, perhaps that happened just last week on Easter Sunday. Some of you perhaps are here and that life change that I'm talking about has not happened. Scripture has one of my favorite pictures of Jesus. And there have been paintings that have been made about this picture. He's pictured in Revelation as standing at the door and knocking and waiting for the answer. Now, in the modern police detective shows, if nobody answers, they just bash down the door. That's not what Jesus does. And he doesn't, I don't think he pounds on the door. Let me in! It's a simple knock on the door that we can hear that's unmistakable and that we respond to. It's an invitation that Jesus has saying, I am the almighty God. I am everything you've heard, everything you've learned and more. And if you will simply open the door of your heart and your life and let me in, we will have intimate fellowship together and I will change everything. Here's a sobering thought. Jesus already knows everything. You don't have to open the door of your heart for him to know what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought. He knows everything. And not only does somebody know, but he knows. The only one that's never sinned, that's never done that, never said that, never felt that, he knows everything already. You still going to open the door? Yeah. Because you know what? 
He changes everything. He doesn't come in with this long list. Say, what about this and what about this? He comes in and goes, I can cleanse every stain as we sang about this morning. Man, you talk about celebrating. As you drink the cup, the blood of Jesus that was poured out so that your blood didn't have to be spilled, that's reason to celebrate. That the body of Jesus was torn apart so that as I receive the body of Jesus and join the body of Jesus, my body doesn't have to be ripped apart for my salvation. I simply open the door and let him come in and it changes everything for the better. Wow, that's a happy ending. And many people in this room have experienced that and if you have not yet experienced that, don't wait another day. It's just too good. And there's too many sequels that the Lord wants to write in all of our lives. But at the end of the day, as we prepare to take communion this morning, what are we to think and feel? Well, Pastor Stan talked about last week the fact that there still are many people in our world that don't recognize who Jesus is. And Jesus wants to give you a fuller picture and a clear revelation of who he really is. This is part of it. He goes on to say, you are valuable to Jesus and he cares about you. Despite what you've done, he loves you and cares about you desperately. And Jesus, only Jesus can give you a peace and a joy that will last forever. You can look all your life Only Jesus can give that to you, and he desires to give that to you. So what are we to do? Well, we respond to his invitation. And I'm going to give you an opportunity, if you have not yet opened the door of your life to Jesus, to open that door for the first time. But in Revelation 3.20, Jesus is not talking to unbelievers about opening the door. He's actually talking to the church. And he's saying to the church, here I am. If you will open the door, I will come in and have fellowship with you. And he is continually knocking at the door and saying to us as believers, will you experience moments of intimacy with me? Because I have called you to more than exploits. I've called you to more than religious observation. I have called you to intimate relationship with me. And he desires that this morning for all of us.